Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to this special live edition of the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from that storied bastion of pretension and snob, I mean, culture and learning, the bookworm in Beijing. I am Kaiser Guo, joined here by the prodigal son, Jeremy Goldcorn, implacable enemy of the people, and yet dear friend to me, the man behind Danway.com who, by great good fortune, happens to be back this week in his familiar stomping grounds here in Old Chokey. For those of you who haven't been following the plot, Jeremy uh, moved from Beijing back in February to follow his lovely wife, Wu Fei, a very talented musician, to Nashville, Tennessee. And this is his first time back in Beijing, the longest time he's been away in 20 years, Jeremy. Greet the people of Beijing in that genteel Tennessee accent. <laughs> I can't do you it yet, quiet. but hello, Beijing. <laughs> oh, <God. Yeah. laughs> I should say hi, y'all. Hi, y'all. <laughs> uh, we're also joined by David Moser, whose wisdom, his erudition, his musical virtuosity have been inspiring petty resentment accruing in me now across <laughs> the many years I've had the pleasure of knowing him. David is, of course academic director of the CET program here in Beijing, most of whom are present tonight. Look, oh my God, Moserlicious, he's got the fan club. Your song is upside down, dear. Have you taught My students are a little challenged. <laughs> they read too much Chinese, it sort of screws up their brains. Okay, great to see you, man, great to see you. Um, and we would have been joined by the absurdly tall Eric Abramson, the king of Beijing translation nerds, uh, but apparently he was physically assaulted by Chinese literary dissidents who were enraged by his insistence in a recent New York Times editorial that Chinese literary dissidents don't actually exist. Um, he's given up, he's given us actually his, his, his express permission to mock him ruthlessly during these, this event. And so guys, let us not squander this rare opportunity. Well, he's too tall. <laughs> That's his main fault. Uh, so we're here actually today as, as, of course, part of the 10th anniversary of the bookworm. So happy birthday again. Uh, actually, I, I don't believe that the decade that we're celebrating uh, the, uh, the, the, the bookworm here includes the several years that it was over when yonder, about uh, 400 meters from here where Taikuli Village now stands, where it was combined with this French and Moroccan restaurant called Le Petit Gourmand. Anyone remember that? Anyway, um, the bookworm, as you all know, has been the gathering place for many frustrated and angsty novelists and screenwriters you can find here during the day, uh, because they don't work, hunched over their Macs, and <laughs> cursing, lamenting the fact that it's no longer a smoking environment. It's been host to many published writers, unlike these guys. Uh, it's also uh, to an, an impressive lineup of speakers who've addressed a variety of topics 
uh, to some great and not so great stand up and improv, and it's even been host. I've heard to an occasional quiz show, uh, which is which is something we hope to do again. So today we're actually going to go uh, riff on a, a, a few of the different things that the Bookworms' tenth anniversary brings to mind. Um, you know the very learned talks from the great speakers that they bring, and the weighty and stimulating conversations that one so often has, just with friends and acquaintances, people that one meets here in this in this storied place. Uh, but uh, you know, also the, the fact that these conversations mostly involve foreign residents in Beijing, and not just not just that, but ones who tend to come from the developed world in a kind of parallel conversation. Uh, that's really too often quite disconnected from the discourse about this city, this country, and these times that the Beijingers themselves have been having. So we'll talk about the last decade here in Beijing and, and about the, the defining characteristics of, of the place here, which I think would, is, I think we would all agree, the defining characteristic is change. Not smog, but change. <laughs> and uh, we'll talk about other facets of life in this frenetic, frustrating, funny, fucked up, and fabulous place. At the risk of prattling on too long, I wanted to actually set the stage here for our conversation by reading a little section from something I wrote almost 10 years ago to the day. It's an appropriate kind of thing. In a column that I used to write for the Beijinger magazine, the column was called Ich bin ein Beijinger. I don't know if you guys remember that. Uh, and for the October 2005 issue, I wrote one called The Lifers. And let's, let's have The Lifers sort of be the theme of, of, of tonight. Uh, Jeremy, um, you were telling me as we were kind of walking along kind of not very straight last night, not very straight line last night. Well, what are you referring to? You, 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 were, you were telling me that you had always thought of yourself as one, thought of yourself as a lifer. Um, and um, you know, now you've, you've moved. David, you're, you're kind of a lifer, huh? No? Uh, I'm still alive, at least. No, but it's yeah, like the old joke, you know. Have you lived here all your life? Not yet. Yeah, that's right. kind of the way, the way I look at it. Yeah, I mean, and, and I'm, I'm actually going to be leaving um, after 20 years here. Although I plan on, you know, living the kind of by. Uh, well, I mean, they call it now. I'm going to the Bay Area, the B-E-I area, the Greater Bay Area, bay. or, or bay right, area. that's what we call it now, um, the Bay Area. Um, so, audience, show of hands, how many of you out here would regard yourselves as a lifer or aspire to be a lifer in Beijing? All right, one brave one. soul. <laughs> there's a, there's a, there's two, 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 three. All right, all right, we got three, three <laughs> lifers here. Um, it's coincidentally, it's one of my students. I think I, well, I, think you, I brainwashed him or something. You've done a good job. <laughs> yeah, okay. so. Anyway, I mean, by the oddest coincidence, when I was preparing for this session on Sunday morning, I suddenly got a WeChat message from an old friend of mine named Xiaonan, uh, who sent me a link to a book that named me as an author, and it was apparently a collection I'd completely forgotten about, that somebody had translated some, some essays of mine, uh, and uh, it happened to be, actually, the one that was included in that compendium was The Lifers, uh, and I... Uh, I figured that was, I mean, I, I gave it another read again, and I found that it was kind of apt uh, to, uh, to what we were talking about today. And I took this very much as a sign from on high. So while I read this, I want you to think about whether what I wrote then remains perhaps true today. So here goes. Expatriates settle here for a wide variety of reasons. They, they're moved here by multinationals expanding their China operations, or they're following their own entrepreneurial <coughs> impulses. They come to learn the language. They recognize the growing importance of it. 
They come to teach their own native language, recognizing a growing interest in it in China. They're drawn by a sense of the historical moment or to the cultural and intellectual ferment of Beijing. In the uh, not-too-distant past, in the not-too-distant past, you encountered people you know, fairly regularly who came to China in search of a kind of timelessness of some mystic Eastern spiritual wisdom. You would occasionally cross paths with a dyed-in-the-wool leftist ideologue with a badly, frankly, outdated grasp on China's political economic realities. But these types, thankfully, typically met with disillusionment, and they either got wise or they shoved off, and they've, uh, they're, they're, they're very, I'm grateful to say, they're quite rare today. Most people come to China now because they are drawn by change. They come because these are interesting times. They don't all stay. When you've lived in Beijing for a while, you start to see what qualities separate the sojourners who spend a few years here tops and then move on, separated from the, those hardcore types, the contingent that knows deep down that Beijing is home. These are the lifers. And because change is the one fundamental constant in contemporary Beijing, how the lifers deal with change is perhaps the critical element in how it is that they manage to stay on, to stay sane. Most lifers have stopped getting mad at the fact that Beijingers want their city to be modern. They've come to grips with the fact that in a city of, this states it, 15 million, uh, not everyone is going to be able to live in a courtyard home on a quaint hutong. Privately, they have their moments of nostalgia shared with other lifers about the hardships they endured in earlier times before Hypermarts and Starbucks and Jenny Lou's. They'll uh, reminisce occasionally about the times when they felt like they knew virtually every <coughs> expatriate in town, but they deal. They accept that Beijing's no longer that small town they once knew. They reach out to the people new to town. They make new friends, and they don't stick cliquishly to other lifers. <laughs> they also know the limits of their own Chineseness, the limits of their own ability to change, to affect change. Insular expats who don't really manage to form real friendships with Chinese people and who don't make a real effort to learn the language, tend not to last too long. That's obvious enough. But they're opposite numbers, and we've seen these people before. Those foreigners, so anxious to go native that they abjure any contact with other foreigners, they usually don't last either. These are the types who use the word laowai with derision, as in, it's a laowai party. They miss out on the fact that part of what makes Beijing such an attractive place to live in is that it is such an international city. At some point, they realize that no matter how good their language skills, they're not, and they never will be, fully accepted as, as Chinese. They feel betrayed, and then they leave. This is true of foreign-born Chinese, even of, of Haiwei, of you know, returnees, who have been away for, from China long enough. For the most part, the lifers are done whining but they're far from done with criticism. Their years in this country have lent them a perspective that newcomers generally don't have. That perspective gives them a sense both for how China has already come, uh, how far China has already come, and just as importantly, for the sacrifices that have been made, at times unnecessarily, at the altar of change. They're rooted enough uh, to feel a stake in improving the community. They know the issues, and just as importantly, they know the boundaries of their effective criticism. Perhaps most critically, the lifers keep a sense of humor about the place with all its essential weirdness. The weirdness is a byproduct of change, and they find 
many I find you know merely amusing what what others might regard as utterly you know contemptible. They're they're not inured to the point that they don't even notice. They're just sympathetic with the awkward phases that the city is going through, and they forgive the vulgar missteps of the nouveau riche. The better lifers, and I would certainly not count myself among them, do so without a trace of condescension. That's the real trick. Expatriates in China, Westerners in particular, once saw themselves as agents of change. Think back to the, the missionaries of the 19th century or the revolutionaries of the 20th. Nowadays, few who come here have that hubris. Change in today's China is an exothermic reaction generated internally. Foreigners, for the most part, are along for the ride. Unlike expatriates, Chinese people who've lived through this, this era of massive transformation, they've not had a choice. It's either roll with the changes or be bowled over. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that, uh, David, do you think that this still kind of rings essentially true? Yeah, I think, uh, yes, it does. There's nothing that I could add to that, that that's changed in the last 10 years. I would say, I would say that the, having been here a long time and seeing you know some of these very very few lifers, uh, I almost invited one tonight. Uh, Matt Roberts has been here almost as long as I have. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm trying to figure out what we have in common, and you know one of one of the things would be this this sort of buzz that you get by living here because it is it is a, a, you know a, an environment of constant change constant stimulation. I, I used to joke as the one word answer to why I've been here so long and sort of said, I sort of tell people it's my drug of, cho of choice, yeah. you know, because it's, you, you, it, it is a kind of a high, especially when you first come here, you're learning Chinese, the stimulation, you know, if that's what you want, then China has it in spades, especially when it, in the early days. But other than that, I don't know, there's a, there's a lot of things that lifers tend to have or expats that, that stay a long time tend to have. Part of it, I think, is a kind of a love-hate relationship with your own culture, or at least a, a, a strong desire to try to understand your own culture and culture itself by being in this very different culture. It's the abusive spouse thing, right? You don't know <coughs> Beijing when he's not smoggy. <laughs> well, Kaiser, I mean, I think that it's sort of a platonic ideal of a lifer that you've got there, that, you know, I think that some lifers are these wonderful people you've described, and, you know, a bunch of them are assholes. Uh, there's a lot of lifers that are, like, really bitter and hate living here, but uh, just have to because they're kind of stuck. Um, well, a lot of so, them are escaping uh, something, right? Yeah, right. yeah. I mean, criminal they, charges back home. Oh. They've got criminal uh, pedophilia charges how many back home. Audience, <laughs> criminal charges? <laughs> uh, escaping criminal charges. So, back. I mean, yeah, that's a nice uh, essay. It's well written. I like it. But I, I, I don't think it uh, describes everybody who's a lifer in Beijing. Or, you know, no, I don't think it purports to. But I have a question for you, though, Jeremy. Was it something about you? Or something about Beijing that you think it was that made it possible for you to live in Beijing for as long as you did and to come to call it home as you very much did? Well, both. I mean, I, I, I like Beijing, so it's a kind of a, you know, it's Beijing and it's me. I mean, um, okay. uh, what I like, what, why I thought I was a lifer was, I think, similar to, you know, David's idea of a drug of choice. It's just an incredibly stimulating place. And um, I mean, you know, I, I went to Nashville in February and I didn't really miss Beijing. Uh, the last year in Beijing, I, I was kind of very stressed uh, for various reasons. Uh, and I was one of these people who, you know, somebody would elbow me 
getting into the elevator and I was this close from exploding, you know, some uh, time ago. One, one, one day I, I, got, I went out of my apartment building um, and there was a human poop in front of my apartment door, like the, the front door of the apartment building. And the, it's sort of Chaoyang Park West Gate. It's kind yeah, of their I'm, all I'm fancy sorry, apartments. I, I did that. <laughs> oh, it was you. <laughs> and I found myself enraged. I'm like, what the fuck? You know, I've been in Beijing 20 years. Everybody, all my neighbors have Lamborghinis. Why is there human poop? <laughs> um, Some of the people who drive Lamborghinis are human poop. So I got to say, I mean, one of the things that I absolutely love about living in Beijing is just the intellectual energy of the place. I mean, how any of us can head out on any night of the week to a do dozen different watering holes and end up just engaged in a fascinating conversation with somebody who's doing really interesting work here, uh, who has really you know valuable perspectives, who says insightful things. Uh, I mean, there's a kind of douchebag filter at work here, which I think is kind of wonderful. Uh, it, it, I mean, it just sort of sends a lot of people a packing very quickly. Uh, so it turns out that so many people that I do end up meeting here are really engaged in China. They're knowledgeable about China's history and China's culture and therefore develop a, a real sense of empathy for the place and its condition. So what do you attribute this to? What is so different from some of China's other cities that shall not go mention China? Well, it's quite an unpleasant place to live, really, I think, Beijing. I mean, it's not a nice... You don't come here for the lifestyle, do you? I mean, would anyone come here for the lifestyle? I don't think so. Uh, I mean, food, yeah, uh, you know, of people. But, I mean, it's kind of big and too many people and traffic jams and dirty and polluted. And so uh, if you choose to live in Beijing for any length of time, you're not doing it because it's not Boulder, Colorado. You know, it's not Hawaii. You don't... Uh, you know, I, I was in Hawaii recently and I realized that most of the people who live in Hawaii are either kind of, uh, you know, uh, rich people with no ambition or poor people with no ambition. Um, and it, it's sort of um, because, like, why would you have any ambition? You can go surfing every day and the weather's perfect. And you you know. need a house. How, <laughs> you how just sleep on the beach. That, not an ambition? <laughs> that is my ambition. <laughs> yeah, so you're going to have to become one of the rich people with no ambition. <clears throat> Otherwise, you'll have to, you know, drive Uber or something. But Beijing is not that. I mean, you don't come here because it's pleasant. Beijing is the center of the Chinese world. There's something about being here that won't let you forget where you are. It's not like, you, you know, you, it forces you to keep your mind on where you are and keep focused on why you're here. Whereas when I feel like I'm in Shanghai, I can, I can almost immediately forget why I'm right. here. Shanghai does not inst just ins insistently remind you that you are in China and what kind of a country China is. Right. Beijing will never... Shanghai is where you were Tom Cruise jumped from building to building in Mission Impossible. You know, so you might as well be in a movie. Uh, that's way, the way I look at it. Whereas in Beijing, you're, you're sort of in a... You're maybe in a movie, but it's a dystopian... <laughs> <laughs> You know, no, but uh, I mean, I, I need Blade Runner. Have you seen that thing, the Blade Runner? I mean, there's part they show, they show pictures that that look like they're a scene from Blade Runner, like the the the, the tower in the in the Olympic. Pangu. Yeah, with with you know some like beautiful model there, and it's just completely f smoggy and everything. And it's Blade Runner. It's absolutely out of Blade Runner. 
Why did I get off on that? Anyway. I don't know. So I, I want to talk about these these parallel conversations, these separate conversations that are too often happening on the one hand by foreigners living in Beijing, often in English, and on the other, the conversations in Chinese by Beijing's own intelligentsia. Um, Chinese are, are definitely reading the discourse, our discourse about them, but do we read what they're saying? Are, are we reading, you know, uh, or Li Daohui? Is, is this is this disconnect a problem? I mean, how do we engage in the Chinese conversation better? You know, you should ask Jeremy this because he's been in Nashville. He's been in the U.S. recently. You know, do you feel that disconnect between what Americans know about China versus what even the no, average? No, I mean, I'm talking China about us. I'm talking about us. I mean, people, yeah. people in this room, uh, the the the, the non-Chinese people in this room, anyway. Who are very engaged, very interested? Oh, you're in saying that the expats here are also right. Out, I, I, on the other I, side I've of a wall. Studiedly avoided the use of the word expat because I find it to be a highly problematic word, and I'll get that into that in, in a bit. But uh, I, 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 ten years ago, I wrote that essay and used it without any kind of you know reflection, and now I, I, I believe that the word expatriate, expat, is an inherently racist word that you do not describe. Yeah. Well, let's just talk about that now, then. Yeah. Well, yeah, okay. All right, let's, let's, let's go on. <laughs> that sounds like a good idea. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, what, what do you think of this word? So Is what do these expats think about that word? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I say, you know, throw it on the lexical rubbish heap. It just no longer has place. I mean, why should it only describe people who are, are uh, you know, not living in their country of birth and happen to be fucking white? Yeah, well, I mean, I, my, my problem is uh, from the very first time I, I heard that word, I, I kind of picture like an overweight, pink or red-faced kind of 60-year-old guy in Thailand with an 18-year-old girl on his arm. <laughs> that's kind of when I hear ex, particularly the contraction, that's expat, that's what I kind of picture. And, um, I, you know, I do also think, I mean, <clears throat> in Hitler's memorable phrase, uh, you know, as a half-Jew, I'm a rootless cosmopolitan. I mean, I'm not out of my country. I'm just in Beijing. But no, Kaiser's point is the fact that, that it seems to re refer only to Europeans and American whites. We don't normally say someone from Cameroon is an expat. Right. Usually, usually. Right. right. What, what are they? They're yeah. Immigrants. If, in the not, not in this country. <laughs> it's, it's, a it's a little bit like that uh, thing, that a map that I forwarded on Twitter where it says, you know, the Western consensus, and it's Europe and America. <laughs> That's the West, right? And it's like expats are like that. New Zealand. And, and New Zealand. Canada. Canada. <laughs> Australia. Australia has 15 people. They're not... They're just, <laughs> a small country. <laughs> so, I mean, so, I mean, show of hands, I mean, are we all ready to, to forswear the use of the word expat? Yeah, all right. Politically correct. It's, it's, it's the two really lifers. Like the word, <laughs> the word gypsy, it's now in the ethnic garbage pail, right? That's, 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 right, right. Okay. that's right. I don't know if the audience is convinced, Kaiser. <clears throat> uh, yeah, I don't see, uh, I've not won that. But I will work on you all separately. <laughs> but okay, let's go back to what, what you were trying right, to talk so the about. What was the difference, the parallel I mean, conversation? You know, once, once upon a time, there were these bridge blogs. There was a whole industry of bridge blogs. You know, you had Roland Sung writing ESWN. You had Jeremy, you had you writing something Dunway. called org. Yeah. I mean, that was our first purpose was to um, translate Chinese right. uh, writings that weren't appearing in English. I, I still see, I mean, I, I still see like uh, Ma Tianjie's blog, Public Opinion. I think he does a very good job of this, of keeping people current in, in the conversation. 
Uh, where are we? I mean, surely there's more than fucking China smack to look at to, to figure out what Chinese people are. are well, there's plenty now. I, I should just say uh, I'm conscious of my students sitting here. I, you know, it's it's a shame. Jeremy here. I mean, I'd hate to get sentimental about this, but you know that that blog was an amazing breakthrough because precisely what Jeremy, what Alice, what Joel Martinson did was to take the Chinese, uh, you know, uh, discourse. It, you know, the Beijing Wan Bao and the things that ordinary people Chinese read and put that in English so we could, it gave us a window onto what ordinary Chinese people were thinking, reading, talking about. And we sort of take that for granted now because that's out there. There are many things like that now. And you, you know, you have Google Translate. I mean, it's easier to get into that world. Baidu Translate. Baidu, sorry. <laughs> we have a Baidu guy here, right? But 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 back then, you know, when you go back and look at those 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 articles, they were amazingly well done. They were very helpful, and it sort of trained as, it, to me as as someone who you know every morning woke up with danway.org. It's sort of you did. <laughs> what was danway.org doing? I always say I used to wake up with Joel Martinson. That sounds even worse, but, right? But no, it was contemplating waking up with Alice Chin Liu. Yeah. Now I have we can wake up with both of them, you know. But anyway. Um, <laughs> Sorry, can we cut that from the podcast? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Maybe it'll break all yeah. Feng shui, feng shui, feng shui. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I want to, uh, uh, I mean, because, you know, all three of us are married to Chinese women, to Beijingers, you know, so the, the Beijingers themselves are another one, of, you know, the, the great draw of this city with their potty mouth poetry and, and, and their... I mean, that, that, that gargling R sound, like it's every day is talk like a pirate day here in Beijing. It's, 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 it's a marvelous thing. Um, I mean, so uh, let's talk about them. I mean, I, I, I would dare say, I mean, it's the personality of Beijing that keeps us here or makes us just love the place as much as, it, as we do. Um, you know, rhapsodized, baby. I mean, come on, what's, 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 what is it that we love about our Beijingers? You want to start? I'm asking you. I, no, yeah. Oh yeah, man, yeah, I could, could go on for days. Lost. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, one of the one of the things. Uh, yeah, this was my trivia question. If anyone can name the four core values of Beijing that are up all around the city, do you remember what those are? Oh, those can anyone do it? Ai guo, patriotism, Anyway, whatever. So now, if you look at Beijing, is do, is do Beijingers have gongde? No. I mean, you yourself just just spit off the ra ra railing just a, a few minutes ago when we were out there. You know, we were out there I having a cigarette. A, I was no gongde whatsoever. You spit on the, over the railing. I can now announce. You were on the you were being asked about the charms of Beijing. I know. I know. Okay. I just well, want to <laughs> bash. Kind of. oh, okay. So it's not gongde, right? It's not aiguo. Beijingers, Aigua, they're the most cynical people about their country. Changxin, oh, uh, I don't know, maybe yeah. a little bit. Okay, wow. But but the thing I, I think is 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 Baorong. They're they're they're. It is so easy. It's always been that way. To this, to, still to this day, it's so easy to get into a Beijing uh, scene, a Beijing group of, of writers, of intellectuals, whatever. They're totally accepting of outsiders. They do not judge. They do not feel superior. They are they are welcoming, opening. You know, they're very open, more so in the, in the past maybe than now. But that's a function of just the modern society. But that that's something I really love about Beijingers. 
is it doesn't matter what class they are, it doesn't matter if they're intellectuals, it doesn't matter if they're taxi cab drivers or the Fuyan in, in my building, they will relate to you and talk with you and open up with you. They're, they're fantastic. But has that changed in the time that you've been here? I said a little bit, but I don't think it's a function of Beijingers. I think it's a function of modern society where we're all, we're all looking we at chat. screens like you're looking at right now, you know. <clears throat> WeChat world, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, but in, in not just in the last decade, I mean, we can go further back, but, you know, the, 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 the balance between the foreign residents of Beijing and the Beijingers themselves, that dynamic has, to, to my mind, to my way of thinking, quite appreciably changed. Jeremy, do you think that that's, that's the case? Yeah, well, we used to be something special because we were foreigners, and now nobody gives a shit, which, um, you know, I, I think, you know, can be a bit weird when you're kind of used to people being, oh, you know, you say, yes, yeah, and people are like, oh, your Chinese is so good. Yeah. And now people are like, ah, blah, blah, blah. You know, no, but, you know, um, um, but I, I, in, in many ways, I, I prefer that, that I'm just like some dude, you know, I, I'm not, like, nobody cares that I can speak a bit of Chinese, you know, that's uh, a change. That is a change you know, since the 80s. I, I, I kind of like that, actually. Yeah, me too. I mean, uh, in Beijing, you still sometimes do encounter people, you know, you say ni hao, and they're like, ooh, your Chinese is so good. And I'm just like, oh, no. Go, you know, go but back to Hunan. You, you remember when... <laughs> <laughs> sorry, 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 guys. No names of Hunan. For your information, my ancestral homeland is Hunan, and it's a lot of every fucking joke. It's really... It's really not cool. It's the size of the state of Missouri, and there's like the population of fucking Germany living there, and they're like, you know, cheek by jowl by somebody else's ass cheeks, and it's not, it's not. A, Doesn't make for civilized no, living. <coughs> no. Okay, but that is the cradle of Chinese civilization. Uh, but I, I was saying, do you remember when it used to be that we foreign types were rich? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> I mean, that whole dynamic has changed quite Yeah, I do that, yeah, I do. It's, it's just, um, I remember uh, not too long ago, or it was a few years ago, Jeremy and I got interviewed by this popular radio program in America, and uh, the bumper that they had for the show, they never actually aired it on the show, it was a scene in which I was walking around the parking garage with the, the, the producer and the interviewer, um, just sort of naming the cars. That's a Maserati, that's a Lamborghini, that's... A Rolls Royce, that's a, a, a BMW 700 series, and that's my electric scooter. <laughs> uh, it was, it was, it was like that. I mean, and it, it sort of feels that way uh, these days. It's like, you know, we are no. I mean, it's changed the dating dynamic. It's changed, you know, a, a, a lot of things in China. Just the the, uh, the free availability of international travel that has, that has right. really changed things. It's, yeah. I, There's, I, I had an interesting experience. Uh, actually, I'm, I'm not married to a Beijinger. I, oh, she's, yeah, a, she's a Hebei. Yeah, she's a Hebei, almost. But, so I'm a, I'm, so Hebei is sort of my province-in-law, you know. And so, uh, but my, my in-laws, my, my wife's two sisters and their family, I've seen them really rise to this, the, the Xi Jinping, you know, or the Chinese uh, goal of the Xiao Kang. Shohei, right? Yeah, There's some middle comfortably, comfortably well, well, off. well off. They're driving cars. They all bought apartments. They're doing really well. They come and they're 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 not they're cool with money. They're 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 not rich, but they're they're happy. They're 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 safe. My my father-in-law just had a heart surgery, and the government paid for it all. Eventually, we had to we had to pay it out 
out of pocket and uh, up front, but then they pay for it. So they're they're sort of happy. And then I talked to my landlady, who's 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 like immigrated to Zamla. Oh. Who's then I talked to my landlady, who's like immigrated to Australia, and she owns like six or seven apartments in Beijing. So sh- so she's not only a millionaire; she's probably a you know a ten millionaire. And she's panicked. She's saying, oh my God, what are we going to do? Oh, we sell these houses. Oh, we got to get out of here. Oh, the economy's collapsing. Oh, what are we going to do? She's, she's scared shitless. And she's a, she's a multi-millionaire. And my wife's family's like, well, I'm happy. It's she's like painting a target on the bitch's back. But it's true, it's It's not just the wealth thing, though, but it's also like this knowledge gap, right? This um, There used to be sort of information asymmetry going on here where we kind of we came here, we were the foreign specialists, you know, we knew... We could bring stuff. clothes and tapes, no, cassette you, you, you tapes, knew CDs. Stuff that they, that you knew stuff about the world, you know, yeah. You were able to instruct people <coughs> in, right. in the intricacies of jazz. Sure. I was able to, to tell people about the, well, the less intricate intricacies of heavy metal. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, yeah, those information asymmetries are... Uh, largely it's, yeah, gone. It's largely yeah. gone. I mean, it's, it's Despite the you know censorship, it's gone. It's gone the opposite direction. You know, I mean, I, I know some, the, the, many people have spoken about a great tilt that's happening because you know we'll, we'll focus on this decade. You know, this decade encompasses what perhaps historians will see as the pivotal moment of change. Uh, the year that I'm talking about is the year 2008, and I think it's a significant fact that the closing ceremony of the the, the 2008 Summer Games was a mere three weeks before what? The collapse of Bear Stearns. I mean, so as Beijing was sort of swaggering in its triumphalism, we saw at the same time just the beginnings of a full-blown, well, you know, a declinism kind of overtake uh, the American psyche. That's changed a bit, uh, of course, but you know, US American and, and, and European countries felt uh, you know, uh, that, that, that maybe there was really truly a new power rising in the world. Um, how have we, as foreign nationals living in China, experienced that shift? Well, I, for me, it, uh, this this big shift from being you know a, a, a quasi third world country, right? They always call themselves a Fajangzhongguojia, right? Yeah, we're, developing we're a developing country. country. It's been gratifying to me as someone who who is. Maybe I've been here so long I've got Stockholm syndrome, you know, or something. But I'm like rooting for them. And and you you you've certainly heard in the '80s and '90s, Jeremy and everything. People you you say they say how do you like China? Oh, I like I love Beijing. And they say no, no, we, we suck. Our country's down, you know, in the toilet. There's nothing good at all about us. Said, oh, I like it. Said, no, no, it's terrible. And they had this this feeling of you know patriotism, but a sense of inferiority. It's like there's something wrong with us. And now I hear that less and less, except among the one percent assholes who want to get out and you know immigrate. But mm-hmm. everyone who's here, there's you don't have this instinctive feeling of the you know we suck, we're horrible, and it's because the whole entire mood of the country. They just look at the they look at the economy. Look at right now today, Xi Jinping in Seattle, uh, and in the United States, the dynamics have totally changed. China is strong, it, you know, it hasn't. It still has lots of problems. But Xi Jinping comes there as more or less a, a, a global power equal. He's addressing the UN Assembly. 
And that has to do something to the psyche of the Chinese people. I've seen that turn Absolutely. 180 yeah. degrees since the 1980s. It's amazing. It's one of the biggest changes I've felt since coming here. But it's weird because I mean I feel like it hasn't settled nicely into something. It, 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 you go between these sort of this this manifest superior, I mean inferiority complex to this kind of really quite unattractive swagger, and it hasn't settled into that comfortable confidence that should be you know somewhere in between. Maybe it will. Maybe the the I, I think there's there are also still a lot of doubts uh, in, in the confidence. I mean, you know, Xi Jinping's daughter went to Harvard, not they died. You know, uh, just, just let me finish. Let me finish. Um, uh, you know, as do a lot of people, a pragmatic choice, yes. But why the pragmatic choice? Because the confidence in the home university isn't there. Why are people so keen still on buying? You know, the uh, you know Yuan Zhuang like. Um, products from overseas right. you know people go their friend is in america or in europe or whatever and and they want the product that is is from there not even the same thing that is available here you know you go to the apple store there it's sort of iphone but people still want something bought abroad because they think something goes wrong here somehow with a lot of stuff and i don't think that's completely gone away despite the swagger so i think it's a very interesting mix of um, you do know those Apple products are actually manufactured in China. Right? Yes, <laughs> I know, but people don't trust stuff that's yeah. like they trust stuff that's sold abroad much more. And and this is not this is a generalization, right. but it's a very accurate generalization. No, I, 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 many many people feel this way. Right. So uh, it's a very mixed up kind of sentiment towards the country. I think it is. It is. But but I, I think I think if you look at opinion polls and you look at at, at what people say. I think I think there are these these problems, and there's there's a lot there's still a lot that they they feel they see the wrong with their own country. I think it's a trajectory issue. I mean, they're looking long term. It's, it's, it's sort of like when you look when you ask people, do you th do you think your future will be better than that of your children? You know, you get a I think you get a resounding yes here, and you and in the U.S. it's it's flipped. I think in the U.S. you're going to get a, not a resounding, but you're going to get a sigh or something, right? That's, that's, that's true. The difference. Uh, that, that, that is difference, although it'll be interesting to see in the next few years, you know, if the economy slows down a bit, if, right. the, if that continues to be the case. And on the other hand, I find in the U.S., you know, I mean, particularly like watching Republican debates, I'm like, these people think this, these things that are wrong with the country and the declinism, I'm like, you have no idea, like, how nice things are here for most people. It's like, I mean, there are problems, but... It's really He's still like, in his honeymoon period. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of problems, but like a lot of people have a really, really nice life. I a took, lot of people. When my brother came here, I took him to Hohai, and he took a look at it and said, "Ah, so this is the oppression of the Chinese people." You know, you go to Hohai, and it's couples. I mean, it's like idyllic. It's amazing. You know, that's that's a part of Beijing that most people don't think about when when, when they when they when they think of Beijing. Right. What, let's, let's that was a non sequitur, David. I <laughs> <laughs> said they live a nice life. You should go to Hohai with a date sometime. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's take it back to the, 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 the question of change, which is what I really want to like, focus on. I mean, it's just interesting to me to look at this little minority population of which many of us here tonight are a part. I think about how differently we handle change as compared to our Chinese friends. I mean, I am a guy who... In, in living memory, this is in the late 90s, was sitting there on a sunny San Lintuan afternoon drinking some, you know, drink with, you know, like a mojito or something and, and, and saying to my friend, one of the things that I really like about this place is the slow pace of life. <laughs> and now, you know, everybody walks faster than me. 
I get in the elevator and everyone is like following each other, pushing up the close <laughs> elevator button. Every, everyone is in such a damn hurry. And I haven't really sped up that much. I mean, part of it is I'm getting, you know, old and feeble. But, but th- 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 that, that is, I mean, it's a yeah. remarkable acceleration that we've experienced. And, and have we kept up? Have we really kept up? Are we, you know, I mean, this is, this is a phenomenal uh, transformation of society. It's a, a psychological one. It's a physical one. It's, a, it's an infrastructural one. I mean, it's, it's happening across a broad spectrum of China. This is the country where the rubber hits the road on, on, on globalization. This is the country that has benefited the most from globalization. This is the country that has suffered the most from globalization, from its excesses. So, you know, uh, the good sides, you know, the, the, the job creation, the, the infrastructure, the all of these things that have happened, but then the bad, the environmental degradation, the wealth inequality, all of these things, uh, it, it's good and bad. I need to see how the story ends. I, 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 I need to be here to see that. But but, but uh, the, the thing that always impresses me is just the, the much greater capacity of my Chinese friends to absorb change. change. I couldn't agree with that more. I think that, that to me is one of the most kind of impenetrable, but in a way admirable things about Chinese people. And, and this is so paradoxical, because I, I, can, I can say to you with a very straight face that there are no people on earth who are more freighted by their history, who carry around more historical luggage than the Chinese, who feel more inertia and inability to change because of history. I can believe that, and in the same moment, believe there's nobody in, in, on, on this planet who's capable of changing faster, changing on a dime yeah. faster. Yeah. I mean, how can both of these things be true? And yet they are. Yeah. I don't know how to explain it. There's almost a psychological thing I've seen uh, uh, at every level, even among some of my friends. Uh, after the 89 incident, some, some of my Peking University friends were able to make it out and go to, to Indiana University. And the first night they were there, I loaned them my bike and they were riding across the campus. And I said, so how did you feel the first night in the United States? And they said, well, I felt I was pretty much at Peking University. It's pretty much the same. I said, what? I mean, it took me 10 years to get feel at home in China. I mean, and, and these people felt at home almost overnight. And if, if you think about it, there are people with living memories, some, probably some people here tonight, who went through uh, you know, a Mao period saw you know a red guard period a cultural revolution period saw Deng's op- re- reform on opening up saw Confucius vilified banned hated and now I've seen him brought back they've, they've seen 180 degree changes and utterly different s- situations and people just say mm, they open another subway line oh okay three gorges down that's well, a big dam yeah how did that like happen without the kind of fan? Uh, yeah. it's, 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 there's it's, no it's, fanfare for these things. People take it in stride, and also and also big uh, changes like the advent of digital technology, the advent. You know, there, there was a youth culture after all that that sprang up in the '80s and in the '90s. If it, if this was the United States, there'd be books written about it. People would be wondering, you know, how is this going to affect our lives and our generation? What's the you know the psychological problems of growing up? They just take it in stride and move forward. And there's there's something I can't quite as an American I can't quite understand that. But it's also but I think that's amazing. part of the problem uh, as an American for you because um, <clears throat> I mean <laughs> people in other countries things are fucked up right like my own home country of South Africa. Um, I mean I grew up in apartheid South Africa. The day before I started university, Nelson Mandela was let out of prison. Four years later, we had an actual democratic election, um, and 
everything was completely different, you know, and now... How did they take it? Fine. Oh, yeah, fine. <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, you know. Uh, um, uh, but aren't we as Americans supposed to be the, the, the ones who are the agents of change, who, who, for whom, you know, constant change is, is here to stay? I don't think that describes actually America. I mean, it does, it's a land of innovation for sure, but I mean, people's lives don't change. I mean, history hasn't really affected people in America like it has in China or South Africa or many parts of the world since the Civil War, really. I mean, you don't have this sudden, like, complete realignment of the, of the whole social, economic, and political, you know, sphere in America. I mean, that hasn't happened since the Civil War. What Jeremy's saying is that we Americans are spoiled, oh, yeah. pampered wussies yeah, that's right. who live I, in a yeah. pampered environment yeah, and we yeah. go, oh my God, you know, like... Kind of... Speaking of change, is it possible to get another beer? Because this podcast I find very difficult to do without sufficient <laughs> supply. Adequate lubrication. <laughs> so, I mean, as you wait your beer, answer this question for me. Um, you know, we, we tend to parcel things out into, into decades, and we're here to observe the 10-year anniversary of the bookworm in this location. So 2015 to 2005, 2005 to 1995, uh, 95 to 85, 85 to 75, we've seen part of all of that. What decade actually saw the most profound changes? Jeremy? Well, I mean, I, I think in some ways one would have to say, you know, after Mao's death, reform and opening up, so the very, you know, the early 80s. Yeah, so it's the 80s, right? I think it But really in terms was. of this city, um, I don't know. Yeah, I think it must be the early 80s. I mean, that's when things really did. That's when the aspect in people's eyes changed, right? And that's I agree with you, but I think... People I, switched I th on, right? That, that's right. But, but I, I think it was a truncated change. I think that there was, there was a, again, a trajectory that was, that was broken at 1989, and then you went back to something else in the 1990s. Three I think years, right. Uh, yeah, maybe. I, I think we're still there. I mean, after all, I mean, you know, that we haven't returned even to the levels we were in some some cases before 1989. But I, I, I think among I think a that verified was, set of intellectuals in in right, Beda, I mean, right, yeah. right. That that was a sort of an opening up. I would point to the opening of the digital age. That too, sure. Yeah, when you first started getting bootleg DVDs, and then the next one would be, you know, now where we are with yeah, the internet. Yeah. Those three are just enormous. And things. then physically, I mean, if you're talking about Beijing itself, not China, physically, I, I would say it would be, you know, 2001 to 2008 from the yeah, time they announced. Yeah, the moment that the announcement You know, was. and then suddenly there was like a million more cranes in and Beijing. It also and, felt like yeah. that's when China stopped having a sort of human scale. I mean, it was never entirely human scale. It was ridiculously rectilinear and there were, you know, these right. absurdly broad boulevards, of course. But uh, the, the sort of enormous, the... the, the Thank you so much. I appreciate that, that so that, much. That happened, you know, between yeah. 2001 For and my students who are here, they, are, are they you didn't. This way? Yeah, you can have it, man. Oh, thanks. They, they were. They haven't seen the old Beijing. I mean, uh, the hutong and everything. The Beijing was always thought of as a as a very humanistic or what's the word human centered city. It was, it was it was very ecological. The hutongs themselves, you know, were were, were very feng shui 
uh, you know, paradigms. And, and you go down Chang'an Boulevard now and you go to this CCTV building and everything, and it's almost purposely designed to make you lose track of scale and human, you know, uh, proportions. It's, it's like that's the whole purpose of it, is to, is to wow you. I found it almost like a sort of new quasi, quasi, what, you know, sort of the same, the same ethos or the same aesthetic in which Tiananmen Square was built with the huge hall, the great hall of the people and the right, history. The desire to The, the desire to impress yeah. with the state power. And I see the CCTV building as another extension of that. Hmm. With, the, with the addition that at least uh, the Great Hall of the People all looks okay now. It's obviously very sort of hybrid Russian. The CCTV building, do you think that's going to look good in 50 years? It looks ridiculous now. You no, know, it doesn't. It's one of my favorite buildings in the whole world. It's, yeah, it's beautiful. Then you jump off of it. Before we move to recommendations, one last question for you guys. You guys, I mean, we've been here for an awfully long time, you know, 60 years between us or more. Um, how, how do you get that fix when you just got a strong Jones for nostalgia in Beijing? What, what, where do you go to bring yourself back? What do you do when you need to just like get that nostalgia kick? That's that's easy. That's easy. I go right around the corner into one of the little hutong areas that that still exist on the Qianlong map of uh, Let's have that ping pong place, but near your place, near your. Any, almost any of them. You just go to any okay. restaurant in the back Shimmer alley there, Shimmer. and it's and they'll come in and they'll plop a menu down that's got a hundred items. And you sit there with peanuts and, you know, cha chang sai. And I'm back in the Beijing uh, exactly, of the, not of the 80s, probably of, of before that. I mean, I, mean that's, I think that's the kind of thing I'm going to miss the most if I ever leave, is that culture. So if you guys have a Jones for this, I, I would recommend the, um, the Yan Feng Shichang. You guys ever been to the Yan Feng Shichang? It's like, it's retro. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's Kind of, it's near the um, the Carrefour. If you go just straight south from the Carrefour near the old convention center uh, by the Jing'an Dasha, there's this crazy old place. Where, you know, it's the ground floor is kind of a, a, a wet and dry market, and then the second floor and third floor above it just have like this stuff that it, it's the '80s. It's suddenly you're back in the '80s. It's all those brands that you've never you never see anymore. Like you know, back when branding consisted of name of animal and color so it's like white you know white cat or black you know whatever goldfish everything was named that way right, right white true. elephant batteries white rabbit right right white rabbit right exactly and everything was and it, it, it the, the, there's these delightfully surly waitress i mean you know uh serve people in in these like hideous blue polyester outfits and they're they're just surly and oh you're, it's awesome. you're nostalgic for that I am <laughs> I, I, I mean, my sexual fantasies involve being abused by women like this uh oh <laughs> feng shui feng shui feng shui feng hey, uh, you got you got a nostalgia kick for us oh I don't know I used to find the friendship store actually um, this kind of weird nostalgia kick because. It just, you know, I mean, it, there's no reason for it to exist anymore. The store opened because, at, uh, you know, whenever it was in the 60s, I guess, you couldn't get any stuff, you know, foreign products. And only foreigners were allowed into it. In right. fact, before I was... And you had to use FEC. Agent, you had to use yeah, foreign exchange certificates. Right. And uh, it, uh, it's still, it's this kind of weird feeling of, of, of like a... 
a China that just doesn't exist anymore. I mean, there's no reason for a friendship store. You get much much better products than no any Chinese <laughs> department store. And I, I used to quite like going in there sometimes just to remind myself of how much things have changed. Well, cool. You know what? I mean, the, the signal for you guys to start coming up to the mic if you've got questions uh, is we're moving into our recommendations section now. Uh, and uh, as is our custom, let us start with Jimmy, Mr. Jeremy. All right, I've got a very sort of uh, non-intellectual type of recommendation today, which is I'm st- the first time since 1995 that I've stayed in a hotel in Beijing. And there's a, a hotel on Trunxiulu, the Holiday Inn Express, and it's just a nice place to stay if you ever need to recommend a hotel to somebody coming into town if the first time visit to beijing maybe put them up in a hutong uh, <laughs> but if it's the second <laughs> visit to beijing it's just a great area because it's close to the great leap you're really that's no i don't like the great leap i hate craft beer um uh, <gasps> 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 I, you know beer should be swilled not <laughs> not it's not whiskey or wine (laughs) anyway um, but uh, a a very kind of vibey good street life uh, and you know pedestrian area which a lot of hotels in Beijing you walk out the front door and you can't walk and this one is nice and And it's close to the book very close to good Sichuan food a number of good Sichuan restaurants so yeah right near my home too yeah and right near my home too that's good alright David what do you got for us so, yeah, so Jeremy recommends a Holiday Inn Express. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that great, huh? Okay. And I, I, I unrecommend ben, craft ben, beer. Ben, you can just strike that off. Of <laughs> <laughs> right. so I talked to Jeremy talking to the manager of that hotel just before he came over, so <laughs> yeah. I have something to do with it. He's been calm. He's staying there for free the next three days. <laughs> you know. Uh, I, yeah, so I want to recommend an article in The Atlantic by Benjamin Carlson called The World According to Xi Jinping. And the reason I like it is because I, I've had Xi Jinping's book in, on my office desk for like a half a year now, and I've never been able to get into it and read it. And this Can't imagine why. <laughs> <laughs> it's there. And, you know, it's, I think, well, I should read some of this. Why don't I just read it? And this, and, and uh, Ben Carlson has done it for us. He's read the whole thing from beginning to end. And he summarizes it and tells what's in the book. And it, yes, it is boring, but it's meta-interesting uh, in a lot of ways. And one of the interesting things is he says the United States hardly appears in it at all. It's only mentioned like once, less than Saudi Arabia and lots of other countries. And the, the impression one gets is that the, the United States is not that important. It doesn't figure in Xi Jinping's view of the future, which is very interesting. Anyway, so for those of you who don't want to read his book but want to know what's in it, that's the article to read. Um, this is too weird. I don't know if you guys read <laughs> the Nigerian writer Shimamat Ngozi Adichie. Anyone read, read her? Wow. Yeah, I mean, like, seriously. Wow. Her, her new novel, Americana, is just fantastic, and I highly recommend it. It's treatment of you know the uh, of, of the immigrant and expatriate I'm going to use this in, with her because you know uh, of, of Nigerians in America the relationship between African Americans and American Africans in uh, in America which she writes on just with incredible inside impressions and humor uh, Nigerians in England Nigerians returnees in, in Lagos um, and the, the thing was that for some reason I kept reading it there were definite parallels to me uh, not always real similarities between the equivalent you know, Chinese experiences. It's just a book with a ton of heart and a wonderful love story, and it's just 
full of really well-developed characters and some brilliant, brilliant prose. I shed a tear. I mean, when I finished that book, I was just moved. Highly recommend it. Okay. I see you've read this and you liked it too, right? Yeah, oh, good, good, good. We'll talk. <laughs> also, uh, on the theme of living in a country other than your native country, which is what we've been talking about, uh, Matthew Sheehan, Matt uh, of the Huffington Post, who is easily one of my favorite young writers working in, in China today. And he's been on the podcast twice. Yeah, he's been twice, on, actually, we're going to run his hip-hop one pretty soon. Cool. That will be right. a little bit. Uh, he's done it again with a truly wonderful piece on College Daily. How many people you know about College Daily? I see somebody in the back there, the lifer guy, I think. No, no. No, no, no. no. Cool. Um, anyway, China, uh, College Daily, not China Daily, is an online digital platform you know, that's distributed mainly through Weixi and WeChat about college life and about issue, issues that Chinese people face living in America. It's got some, you know, 400,000 subscribers. College students are all reading this, and it's, it's genius. You know, he's a terrific profile on these people. Um, it's, it's, it's titled, Here's what all the Chinese students at your school are reading. And it's, it's great. It's a good piece. And uh, I, I subscribed to it now, and it's really fun to read. To read, you know, like their take on, you know, beer pong or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> no, but on dating. It's like on Tinder. It's, on, it's just great stuff. Anyway, I want to thank you all. Um, <laughs>